This is Empire. From the Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast, this is MPOD, a podcast about conflict, peace, and justice. This program features and is led by master's students in the Conflict Transformation and Social Justice module here at Queen's. I'm Carson Cahoe. I'm Sinead Dean. I'm Morgan Mattingly. And each month, we will examine different topics relating to social justice, peace and conflict studies, and the ways they impact the world around us. Music around the world plays a subtle yet important part in politics. This is particularly true in the case of Northern Ireland, whose inhabitants over the last century have debated whether the state should identify first and foremost as Irish or British. This so-called green and orange divide in part contributed to the eruption of armed conflict in the province between 1969 and 1998, a conflict known as the Troubles. Before, during, and since this conflict, Music in Northern Ireland has been crucial in articulating, elaborating, and enacting both the British and Irish political identities. However, music has had a third and equally crucial role in the history of the Northern Irish conflict. Punk, which rose to prominence in the mid-1970s, offered its fans a third political identity, one which rejected the green and orange binary and offered a radical vision of tolerance, cooperation, and anti-sectarianism. Today on MPOD, we discuss punk in Northern Ireland, its significance in the Troubles, and its role in a post-conflict future. For this episode, I interviewed Dr. Jim Donahue, a researcher at the Mitchell Institute, and joining the conversation today in our brand new MPOD studio is a fellow master's student here at Queen's, Kira Tapalian. Kira, welcome to MPOD. Thanks, Ben. And also, as always, in the studio are our hosts, uh, myself, Carson Cahoe. Morgan Mattingly. Oh, and uh, Sinead Jean. Let's all get started. Uh, Kira, you've studied punk in Northern Ireland before. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so for my undergraduate thesis, I wrote about uh, Northern Irish punk and kind of translated it to what peace builders today can learn from the movement. So Mm -hmm. kind of talking about how punk created a new identity, uh, overcame segregation, and created a political alternative here. Um, That was kind of unheard of in the rest of the area. We were very lucky this week to have Jim Donahue talk to us about punk because he is kind of the resident expert on it, I would say, at Queen's. My name's Jim Donahue. I'm a research fellow at the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. My job here is around the uh, Sounding Conflict research project, uh, but a lot of my independent research looks at the relationships between uh, punk music and culture and the anarchist political movement and wider relationships between music and politics. So, Kira, explain to us what punk is. And I, I know that's a crazy <laughs> question because it's such a, a, a broad thing. What, what does punk mean to you and, and how would you define it? Punk is basically, I mean, a lot of it centers around music, of course, very, you know, heavy electric guitar, drums, bass, pretty simple. There's no particular sound that is punk. There are a variety of sounds that are punk and there are disputes within the punk scene about what is and what isn't punk. And it, it's it's a way to express dissatisfaction with your society, whatever that is and whatever, however that manifests. Yeah, I guess that um, <clears throat> oppositional stance is uh, crucial. A lot of the times it's just kind of this intuitive kickback against whatever forces are there to potentially oppress you. I think that there's a real sort of like look of a punk and like you were saying with the style of the music as well there's like a certain style with it is that standard or can it kind of incorporate a lot of things do you think I think there's does everyone have to have a mohawk (laughs) no cool I think there's that an aesthetic that is associated with punk but kind of the whole idea of it is you can be whoever you want and you can look however you want. It doesn't really matter. You know, if you identify with the ethos of it, then that's you. Because punk is a popularly conceived culture, it's not a culture that's got a kind of particular vanguard that's setting down the limits of the culture. It can be endlessly reinterpreted by the next generation that comes along, and there's typically a reaction to what's come before. Sometimes it's a kind of a iconoclastic reaction to your forebears. You say, well, whatever the old people are doing, fuck that. We're going to go and do... <laughs> something else. Sometimes it's about rejecting what came before and starting from scratch. Sometimes it's about um, almost recuperating an earlier genre and both of those are used to kind of give punk bands a certain 
authenticity. Yeah. It's really more of a lifestyle than just a mode of dressing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have dyed hair and half my head shaved, but that is by no means, (laughs) you know, a prerequisite for identifying as punk. So if we're looking at punk as a movement or like an ideology or any of those kinds of things, what kind of politics did this encompass? So Mm. I think I've got an awareness that it's like anarchist, anti-fascist, anti-racist, all that kind of stuff. Was that it or were there more strands? Was it kind of all encompassing of all political spectrums? Um, And where did it really come from? In the UK, it started a lot in um, squatters movement. It started it was kind of anti the corporate music mm-hmm. monster. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know one of the things the clash always went to loggerheads with their management was, was they never wanted to sell their records for a high price. And as you know, it progressed and you had kind of Thatcher and austerity, there was a lot against that. But I mean, it's been used, it's been used to express a lot of different views. Mm. Um, I don't think you can kind of bottleneck it into one ideology. That's kind of one of the good things about yeah. it. It's mm-hmm. not just one thing. Lots of debate uh, around the late 1970s when punk was becoming a, a major uh, cultural phenomenon, especially in, in England and the rest of the UK. And then a lot of left-wing groups were very concerned about what punk was or wasn't. There were attempts by the right wing to make a claim on punk. And both of these things were rejected by various sections of the, the punk scene at that time. So the opposition doesn't come from a particular ideological base that's set down but the oppositionalism inherent in punk meant that it wasn't easily absorbed by any of the dominant ideologies or competing ideologies Mm -hmm. so is punk anti-capitalist in capitalist societies yes but you can look at punk bands in eastern europe during the uh, authoritarian socialist regimes there bands like deserter in uh, poland who were anti-communist because Mm -hmm. the regime there was communist One of the things that I found coming from a background uh, where I've very rarely heard punk unless it's like on mainstream radio. Is it not huge in Ohio? Uh, No, Ohio, mm, maybe. Um, Yeah, one of the things that I found very interesting was that it's very much anti-animal cruelty and there's a huge veganism and vegetarianism stream within punk which is also very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I heard from talking with Jim that one of the uh, first punk venues in Belfast... There's a cafe upstairs as well where they did vegetarian food, which is a key um, element of the anarcho-punk bit, uh, animal liberation angle. Which is, is fun to me because you see, you know, people... I, I picture punks in mohawks and ripped leather jackets and they look look mean and tough, but also, like, you know, maybe stroking a bunny. Who knows? <laughs> So uh, does, does punk have this this uh, vision or is that just, just me in my head, the, the juxtaposition between the, you know, vegetarianism and anti-animal cruelty and the sort of tough look that punks have? I think there's a misconception, and I know, Morgan, you've mentioned this, um, of uh, equating kind of the rage aspect of punk with violence, but that's definitely not. I think, you know, maybe people see mosh pits and are intimidated by them or, you know, something like that, but... It's it's absolutely not a violent ideology in any way. Um, I've been in a couple and they're actually really nice. Everyone um, always makes sure you're standing up and you're. They're so lovely. Every yeah. time I've been in a mosh pit, if someone falls down, eight people are yeah. there to come up. It's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. You scare me. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a go. <laughs> um, I think kind of a good summation of it. There's a, a quote from Joe Strummer, who was the frontman of the Clash, um, who was, which was a very big punk band, and uh, he said at a gig. I think people ought to know that we're anti-fascist, we're anti-violence, we're anti-racist, and we're procreative. We're against ignorance. And I think that's a good kind of summation. So with that then sort of idea of what punk in a general sense is, let's situate it within the history of Northern Ireland and within the history of the Northern Irish conflict. Kira, tell us a bit about how punk got its foothold in Northern Ireland. Um, I'd say one of the key moments was when The Clash was supposed to play Northern Ireland and a lot of punk gigs were cancelled for quote-unquote insurance reasons, which was not actually accurate. It was more fear on the part of venue owners. Um, <laughs> because of the bombs and Civil War and all that? No, people were afraid of punk. It was more like a moral panic? Yeah, it was kind like of a, a moral punk. panic against the ethos. They were worried their venue was going to be trash, kind of stuff like that. And there was a case of that here. The Clash were due to play in the Ulster Hall in 1977 
and the gig was cancelled last minute over security concerns and a bit of a, a altercation then with the these punk youths and the uh, the RUC. I wouldn't say it got as far as a riot, but just the usual level of late seventies Belfast tension. But um, and the clash went and posed for photographs. <laughs> There's kind of an iconic photo shoot that they did because they couldn't do anything else um, of them walking around Belfast. Sort of standing beside the the squaddies and whatever else in the were. But anyway, out of the aftermath of that, uh, even if the gig didn't happen, it at least brought a lot of people together who'd been listening to this music and thought, okay, we have the the roots of a a scene here. I think that kind of kicked off. Hmm. Well, it was one of the things that kicked off the movement. And the other thing is, you know, bands weren't coming to play here. Uh, and they were willing to go out and speak to people and, and be in a place that was uh, maybe not on the touring radar for most bands. Hmm. You know, there was the Miami show band Massacre, and with all the kind of political unrest, bands weren't coming to play. What yeah. was the Miami show band Massacre, if you don't mind me asking? So the Miami show band played, played up here, and... Uh, on their way home, were ambushed by loyalist paramilitaries and massacred. And they weren't part of the political thing at all. It was very shocking, and it, that was kind of the last straw f- for other bands to come play here. Hmm. Uh, after that, there was really maybe two acts that that included Belfast or Derry regularly on their tours. Um, you know, this is the, the the era of the the Ring of Steel when the city centre um, was emptied out of people, especially uh, in terms of. Uh, music and nightlife. The very fact that we were able to go and do that was sort of a response to the musical situation that the conflict had led to. If punk is this rejection of the status quo and rejection of political establishments, uh, rejection of oppression, uh, how did punk fit in within this binary sort of situation that you have in Northern Ireland of, of nationalists, loyalists? I mean, if you think of punk as kind of a rejection of establishment politics you know in britain you had that in one manifestation and then here you had both that manifestation and also stormont and paramilitaries and the ideological binary and all of that kind of stuff so there was a whole nother dimension to it and you know there's even a thing that because punk was none of those identities all of them rejected it and feared it and so this was a case where you could be attacked for being a punk be killed for mm. being a punk because people didn't know where you stood yeah. and if you didn't stand with them then that could be dangerous and then in northern ireland that comes out uh, as a rejection of both sides and it's it's a mutual rejection you know uh, people in those communities uh, rejected the kids who appeared to be punk i remember a story a guy told me i think it was uh, pt burns who was uh, instrumental in starting the Warzone Collective in the 1980s, used to play in a band called uh, Static 17. He was in a pub where he was from, in a bit of uh, uh, Republican area of North Belfast, and uh, some guy in the pub, in the toilet, pissed on his leg uh, as, a, as a mark of d- disrespect. But PC just stood there and laughed in his face. Uh, that was his only response. But certainly when I was younger, and it goes for anybody else I've spoken to in the pub scene, you typically get a lot of abuse in the street mm. for looking like a freak <laughs> or uh, one of the best ones that I <laughs> was with my friend just at the bottom of this street actually and it was uh, must have been December or something somebody shouted out the car window it's Christmas not Halloween you freak <laughs> fun we, we always like harassment on the street that's fun for everyone involved isn't it that was sarcasm I don't know if that read in the <laughs> podcast format so you know that's kind of abuse um, so you're kind of uh, rejected by both sides as well as rejecting the community you come from it's really interesting that punk was able to unite people because everyone else hated them. So, you know, you got to stick together. So it's kind of this um, oppositionalism, rejection uh, that seems to cut across most uh, expressions of punk. And then, yeah, that sort of makes itself felt here in the rejection of the overarching narrative of you're either on that side or that side. We're not on either side. And neither side actually wants us anyway. So with the Clash gig particularly, why was this a real moment? How did people mobilise around that gig? And like, how did they find out about sort of all the other people that liked punk in Belfast? Well, it turned into kind of a riot against the RUC. And people started to realise that the people around them were from different neighbourhoods, neighbourhoods they wouldn't go to, the, you know, quote unquote, other side. Right. Um, And it, you know, became an anti-sectarian space because you're rejecting 
the identity that maybe is forced on you from where you grew up and choosing, well, I'm a punk first. The people who were involved with the anarchist scene in Belfast at that, at that time saw the oppositionalism of punk and the politicising effect of punk as, as uh, something inspiring and they, they kind of nurtured that. And it sounds really organic as well. Like, I know we, in our first episode of our podcast, we spoke about the research that Jan King did about conflict at the interfaces and especially looking at Northern Ireland, uh, where these these movements are set up specifically for groups from the other side, quote, to meet. Um, but this sounds like it was a really organic thing where people just realised they liked the same music and had a same outlook on life. And it sounds like it was an incredible mobilising uh, thing for these young and it was a lot of young people as well which had been sort of left out of some of these conversations in politics in the country so you have then this group of punks who are taking themselves out of this binary out of this green and orange divide um, what sort of music did they make how how did these bands engage with with the conflict if at all i feel like that it could kind of be broken down into two schools of thought maybe which could be represented by Stiff Little Fingers. Stiff Little Fingers were the first band that really addressed the conflict. They didn't shy away from it they wrote about you know what was going on around them. And um, it was in fact an English journalist I think called Ogilvy who wrote some of the first uh, conflict related lyrics for Stiff Little Fingers Mm. so their engagement with the conflict is somewhat qualified in that that it wasn't 100% 100% their own organic expression. It was an English journalist coming across and noting the potential that would be there. But certainly the songs like Alternative Ulster uh, became anthems for this kind of uh, other mm. alternative identity and culture that rejected both sides, rejected the paramilitaries, rejected the state, both states. And so that in itself was a radical act because they were saying, basically, screw this. This is what we're dealing with and we're, we don't want to be a part of it. On the other hand, you had the undertones. Sometimes, some bands avoided singing about issues to do with the conflict altogether. Uh, undertones are a good example of that. Who are from the Bogside and Derry, which is, you know, a very politicised neighbourhood. Um, you know, they were singing about Mars bars and how great their cousin was and how they were jealous of that or trying to phone a girl or whatever it is, you know, real kind of teen saccharine tropes. They literally had a song called More Songs About Chocolate and Girls. You know, that's that's their kind of, <laughs> that was their vibe. And that was also a radical act to not yeah. talk about this and to say we're not going to be boiled down to the narrative that the news media, that everybody is putting on us. To make music that wasn't singing about that context was in some sense deeply political. We're going to write songs about being a teenager and falling in love and getting rejected and all that kind of stuff. I talked with uh, Jim about this then, and this is where the iconoclasm... The iconoclasm comes back in again. You know, flipping the bird off to your to your forebears. Certainly in the 1980s, especially the anarcho-punk-inspired bands, really got stuck into singing about the conflict. And then later generations of uh, the punk scene were rejecting the 1980s scene as their forebears. They were getting back to singing about girls or boys they fancy and... and horror movies or whatever, anything except politics, because that was so cliche. Uh, So it's this kind of waves of embracing and rejecting certain aspects of it, including talking about the conflict. Mm -hmm. It kind of ties back to that thing, there's no right way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you don't want to be the same revolutionary as your dad was. Mm -hmm. Like, you want to be something new and interesting and fight a new battle. How did the punk scene look specifically in sort of Belfast, like... How, what kind of places still exist? What were the really iconic bars or venues that were around that would have been the sort of hub for for this kind of movement? Uh, two kind of iconic venues would be the Pound Bar and the Harp Bar, neither of which exist anymore. The uh, Just Books bookshop used to be on Wine Tavern Street uh, down in Smithfield, opened in 1978. And uh, because they sold basically badges, it became a place where punks congregated and hung out. And then they started doing this uh, Saturday afternoon punk club uh, in the Carpenter Bar. It was a gay bar, and they got to use it on Saturday afternoons. And they called it the uh, the Anarchy Centre. Then there was Terry Hooley, his record shop, Good Vibrations, which was on Little Victoria Street, would also be a hub. Um, that's also not there anymore. <laughs> Terry Hooley kind of was the first to produce punk records here. Um, he he made a record label of the same name as his shop, Good Vibrations, and produced Rudy and the Outcasts and uh, bands like that. And is Terry Healy like still around? Like what does he is he still involved in the scene? Oh yeah. Terry Healy's still around. Um, he does DJ sets sometimes around Belfast. Uh, he was in the Sunflower 
a couple of weeks ago than DJ <laughs> sets. So yeah, he's still around. One other big venue, the Warzone Collective, as well. Yes, uh, which also doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the yes, the Warzone Collective on uh, Donegal Street. Uh, so the Warzone Collective is a great example. They obviously emerged in the early 1980s, uh, sort of the depths of the troubles, and their name is in reference to to their surrounding Warzone, right? There were a lot of groups, you know, Peace House and, you know, all of these organizations. So the founders of the war zone were like, nah, screw it. We're in the middle of a war zone. So <laughs> we're, we're just going to call ourselves war zone. <laughs> you know, it's kind of uh, confrontational a little bit and, and humorous, I think, as well. When people were on the streets together, they were people from both sides. They would be stopped by the police and they would be shocked that people from both neighborhoods would be coming out together and be like, well, what are you doing together? I've heard several anecdotes of when the police would stop a group of punks and if they found a Catholic among a group of Protestants or vice versa, they would always ask the old one out, have you been kidnapped? <laughs> We're punks. Simple answer. E even the idea that a mixed group of people could be out was just beyond the pale. So the fact that it was happening in a city that was culturally damaged by the conflict, musically empty in the city centre, was significant for all those sorts of reasons. Punk was deliberately anti-sectarian. Mm -hmm. It wasn't non-sectarian, right. where, where you don't mention politics, you respect everyone's point of view and everyone gets along. It's decidedly saying there are these two traditions and they both suck and <laughs> we don't want in. And it's more just a refusal to be whittled down to that. Like, that's not all that's here. That's not the only, mm. my, that's not my only option. Anti-sectarianism is one of the, in, in the war zone center especially, is one of the, was one of the norms of behaviour that was expected. So, I mean, you could describe it as a rule, but having a rule in a, an anarchist centre is a difficult thing to, to work out exactly. But the poster that was around the walls and, and typically on the, on the bottom of posters, you know, no racism, no sexism, no sectarianism, no assholes, no excuse. Hmm. And no glass as well. <laughs> that was the other one. <laughs> no glass and no assholes were the, were the two rules. Hmm. Um, I suppose... That's another question then of were there issues in this? Because it sounds very neat and organized like, oh, everyone just really liked punk music, got on. There was never any internal struggles, which just isn't how people work. Mm. Um, so whether I think we've mentioned like the Celtic punk scene around mm. the kind of football things. And I think someone said about an example of a band who tried to really split a crowd up by asking them who which football team they Was it oh, you, Kira? Yeah, the Damned came and played. And they were just kind of banter between songs, casually asked, you know, oh, what football team do you support? Which here is a sectarian <laughs> yeah. issue, which they may not have been aware of. And uh, the crowd just went silent and nobody answered. Whoa. There was a, a, another, another story that Jim told me. This was in 2018, I think. So fairly recent. Um about an Austrian a gore grind band which to those uninitiated like myself <laughs> and the key part of gore grind is to be as offensive as possible gore grind is is uh, built around making people uncomfortable and okay. designed to do that but in this case uh, the band decided to try and <laughs> I think some kind of attempt at humor um, told the audience at the gig in the Warzone Center they said something like right we want to have all the Protestants on the left. We want to have all the Catholics on the right. We want to see you guys fight. And instead of getting a, a laugh or, or their uh, desired sectarian conflict on the dance floor, everybody just walked out. And played the rest <laughs> of their set to an empty room. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard there's been numerous bands that have tried jokes like that and it just falls so flat. Uh, an American band called Zeke uh, played in the Rosette Bar. And this was, I think it was during the summer. So all the flags were up, you know, tensions are up. Um, Rosette Bar's in a, a loyalist area surrounded by Union flags. And the drummer from <laughs> the band Zeke, mid-between songs, said, <laughs> calm as you like, out in, across the speaker system, so is anybody here in the IRA? I don't know if he expected some kind of a cheer or something, but yeah, the tumbleweed <laughs> just rolled across the stage and uh, they just had to move on. Um, so... Yeah, certainly there's a trope of bands from outside here coming in with a quite simplistic view of the conflict and um, that is roundly rejected by by people who live here. That is, sounds what they deserved. <laughs> which, which appears very uh, emblematic of, of the punk scene. As Sinead pointed out, though, it's this is not to say that the anti-sectarian nature of punk is always perfect. Mm. Talk about this band that's playing tomorrow night, uh, 
uh, trad fusion bands they're drawn on Irish Gaelic Celtic musical troops yeah. which obviously has a particular significance in the ethno-national divides here and that's something that pops up every now and again in, in punk this overlap with rebel music kind of yeah. theme the Pogues were kind of the, the forebears of this London Irish band taking the kind of uh, energy of punk adding in the instrumentation of Irish trad and bringing it all together in this um, so it's really good music there aren't a lot of local bands who do that there's a band from uh, I think Dublin called Blood or Whiskey mm-hmm. kind of play this style of um, Celtic punk I guess you'd call it but obviously in the local context that's problematic because the cultural significance of Celtic music and, and the, the yeah. a lot of times it's covers of you know wolf tone songs or, or whatever else that are um, clearly anti-British anti-colonial anti-occupation however it wants to be phrased I, when talking with Jim uh, he told me a lot about the overlap ideologically there's a certain narrative of uh, nationalism especially republicanism that is socialist and anti-fascist and anti-imperial and these are all the same tropes you'll find in anarchist informed punk music you know songs about freedom songs about uh, fighting back against oppression these these are common themes Um, but you don't really see the the Coral Ray other I saw one band uh, from the north coast called Shehalian and they played with uh, bagpipes so kind of a Scots Ulster Scots nod there um, there's a band called the Real Mackenzies from Canada who play kind of it's like a Scotsy sort of version of Celtic punk hmm. um, there's bagpipes and so on um, so there's there's a narrow thread there but in terms of uh, incorporating musical themes from marching band tradition or anything like that you, you don't really see it I mean punk can span a wide political spectrum, but I think inherently if you are anti-establishment, the establishment is often conservative. Um, you know, and establishment politics are usually conservative, so there there would be a, nat- a natural kind of left-leaning aspect, I would say. And, you know, Irish republicanism did get a lot of its start in socialism. You know, many of the leaders of the Easter Rising were socialist. Sinn Féin tries to bring some of those tenets back into its politics. Um, so I think you, you can see a natural correlation between those politics. And the establishment politics here during the Troubles were unionist politics hmm. for in terms of Stormont at the time. I think it's interesting. I know we've talked a little bit about uh, Terry Hooley and his impact. And you told us a story about him and John Lennon. Yes. Um, John Lennon was a supporter of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And um, I heard a story that at a awards ceremony, some kind of music awards ceremony, John Lennon kept bothering Terry Hooley about this and telling him that he should do the same, support the IRA, all that kind of stuff. And Terry Hooley punched him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is a great way of looking at it in the sense that, like, Yes, some of the anarcho-socialist <laughs> qualities did overlap, but actually the conflict and the violence and the paramilitaries and the groups were just completely not what people in this scene wanted to be involved in. It was a much more kind of hopeful view for the future and a much more horizontal group that wanted to exist peacefully. I mean, there is always a reaction from the establishment whenever you are anti-establishment. So some songs are banned by the BBC for being too political. There are instances of people being attacked by the RUC. Rudy had a song about the cops and uh, they had a choral refrain in that of SSRUC, which was drawn from uh, street protests and so on. That was one little um, nod to the oppressive security culture, in Belfast at least. Um, and Or even having dogs with them outside of the Ulster Hall and you know, shouting, are you see dogs of repression, which is a line from Stiff Little Finger. And they were being attacked by these actual dogs, which is, it's crazy. So whenever you're in that situation where you are anti-establishment, there's going to be backlash from the establishment. And I think that's something that we also have to think about within the punk movement in Belfast. Correct me if I'm wrong, but even though the unionist politics and uh, this you know, British political identity very much were ensconced in the, the roles of power and represented the political establishment, to the punk movement and to punks in Northern Ireland, the Republican nationalist Irish narrative was itself 
its own sort of establishment against which to to rebel, even though it didn't in Northern Ireland didn't necessarily occupy the halls of power, as you can see with you know Terry Holy getting pissed off that Liverpool boy John Lennon wants him to join the IRA. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I what I mentioned earlier. You know, you had you know the estab- establishment politics of Stormont on the one hand, but also of paramilitaries and of the ideological binary that was also very entrenched in the communities at the time. And it was another thing that was rejected by punk. Okay, so we've talked about what punk meant in Belfast during the Troubles, but I think our next question is, what is punk now and what can it be into the future? One of the, I guess one of the aspects of punk that allows it to be so transferable across different global contexts and how it's managed to um, retain this longevity over what, 45 years on um, is, is so it's non-programmatic, it's iconoclastic, so it reinvents itself as it goes along. And this is significant in terms of the transition in Northern Ireland from um, conflict to post-conflict. Mm. Some people call it peace. The anti-sectarianism of the 1980s is necessarily different to the anti-sectarianism of the 2010s because the, the situation around is different. In some senses, the, the conflict during the 80s and 90s offered space for groups like the war zone to persist, uh, partly in terms of like physical space because uh, city centre areas were so uh, run down, people didn't want to be there, you get cheap rents in these perceived neutral areas. Uh, and it also gave a certain space for critical voices, uh, which certainly some people I've spoken to feel that in, in the post-conflict era, that space for uh, critical voices has been closed down. Um, I, I know from talking with Jim that there is a punk critique of the peace process that is aimed at mainly criticizing the the way in which peace and the peace process has been in, in the politics of Northern Ireland today has been made indistinguishable from neoliberal policies. And this is tied to uh, neoliberalism as well. So the Stormont executive and all parties in that, including Sinn Féin, who otherwise claimed to be a socialist to some degree, and all the other parties, DUP, UUP, SDLP, Alliance, all base their vision of the peace process on uh, inward investment. Policies of investment in the Belfast city centre, you know, building new skyscrapers. And uh, normalisation of the economy. So rolling back um, our very large uh, public sector, rolling back our very large welfare provisions, to bring us into line with uh, the Republic of Ireland and the UK, lowering corporation tax rates to meet the Republic, basically neoliberal policies that they argue will uh, form the basis for prosperity, which will then be a basis for a peaceful, normal society. This critique then of the peace process surrounds the gentrification of the Belfast city centre. A good example of that narrative critiquing the neoliberal peace process. Well, Jim mentioned to me the band a Thousand Drunken Nights, mm-hmm. a war zone associated band who came out with an album in the, in the 2010s, I think early to mid-2010s. Called Blank Check for Peace, which kind of sums up the whole thing. Uh, and they were also quite prescient in tying this neoliberal peace-building agenda to the politics of space. Uh, in, their late, in their 2015 7-inch release, kind of an EP album cover artwork you know shows a lot of you know politicians in suits you know holding money as they're standing over a burning city they have a song in there called class tombstones which is the idea that working class culture is being erased by gentrification and these sort of skyscrapers that appear are essentially tombstones to the culture that have been there yeah so many of the places we talked about being centers for punk in Mm -hmm. the past no longer exist today i said they're present because um, they released that song in 2015 but it had been written a few years before that and, and then eventually the Wars and Collective themselves were direct victims of gentrification. Uh, the Little Victoria Street Wars and Centre was in a building called Bruce House and this building has, has now been knocked down and it's going to be turned into uh, student flats as part of this kind of studentification of, of uh, Belfast City Centre yeah. which has kind of gone hand in hand with uh, the development narrative there. I follow quite a few people from Belfast who I've met or haven't met but on kind of Twitter and I think there's a real feeling of discontentment with the current plans for gentrification especially around the more artistic places in the city so places around like the cathedral quarter Mm. and and how that's been changed and then 
how that's going to have an impact on the rest of the city as well. And I think, yeah, taking away venues mm. and I know there's that feeling in Dublin as well of certain venues getting taken down to be replaced with housing or offices and it feels like a real slap in the face. But I don't know if it will be also a catalyst for some kind of big response artistically. Yeah, I think a critique of the peace process from punks and from politicians is kind of this question of who is profiting? Mm. Where are the working class going? Because they're being driven out. And it's not always clear what the answer to that is. But there, there's a famous activist and politician, Bernadette Devlin, who has said similar things. Yeah, something we've seen in the peace process is that the communities who needed it most benefited least from what's called the peace dividend. And a lot of the underlying problems of the Troubles have not been addressed by the Good Friday Agreement. And that's a critique that Punk has espoused. And that's, again, like, as you said, shared by people like Bernadette Devlin Mikowski and and other activists. And I think a further critique of the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process was the real creation of the sectarian divide and the real cementing of that in in politics and, like, with the power sharing. The peace process is founded on certain perception of society, consociationalism, right? So it's got to be, everything's got to be run through the prism of sectarianism. Hmm. And that goes for uh, funding for projects, that goes for the Stormont Assembly itself and how that's arranged, how people um, identify as being on one side or the other. You you can step outside that marginally, but I mean, in terms of uh, distributing executive roles and so on, that's based on one view, one view, one view, one view. Whilst in, there's positives to it, the real negative is that it, really splits society in one side or another which obviously the whole point of punk was creating this sort of third identity or or middle ground which even today without these spaces where does punk go for both of the reasons that both you morgan and and you sinead just brought up jim talked about a sentiment among some punks that not not at all that they want to go back to the conflict or that they're saying that things were better during the conflict, but it is in certain ways more difficult now to articulate the same anti-sectarian critiques that they were articulating before and during the Troubles because now they're criticizing peace. They're not criticizing war. Yeah. So if you're then critical of neoliberalism and that kind of that particular version of uh, extreme... Uh, capitalism or late capitalism you're also being perceived as being critical of that peace narrative so that offers a smaller space for critical voices to operate in than perhaps was the case at the height of the troubles when um, options were more open although the situation was far bleaker they're criticizing a piece that baked into the the political power structure in northern ireland this requirement that you must have x number of Sinn Féin uh, people in this position x number of dup in this position and I, I just I think that, yeah, it's a lot harder to protest against structural violence and structural mm. issues. And I think that's what we discussed when we were looking at the strike mm-hmm. episode. And when we were looking at those kinds of things, it's a lot more challenging, especially when those structural issues are are couched in the terms of yeah. peace and and God forbid, making money. Yeah. Who's against making money? Of course, as you said, Morgan, it's the question of who's making the money. Yeah. And I think it ties into that kind of the difference between non-sectarianism and anti-sectarianism and from Mm. that, the difference between tolerance and acceptance. And I think a lot of the policies that are kind of put out by city council and Stormont and that kind of thing are non-sectarian. It's like, oh, let's let's forget about all that identity stuff. Let's just all try to get along instead of being like, here's our identities. They exist. How do we handle them in a constructive way? I in no way claim to be an expert on punk, um, (laughs) obviously. Um, But it seems like punk is meant to be kind of this pure art idea. Yet there's this criticism coming out that punk nowadays is no longer that pure art because it's become more mainstream. For example, The Clash. Well, I mean, The Clash, it's kind of a bit of a self-destructive nature of punk where because they were anti-corporate Music, mm. um, like wait, wait, those saying. big structures, yeah, corporate yeah. record companies, that whole mm. corporatization of music, the kind of commodifying it. That once a band got successful, successful, it meant they had to be part of that structure, and then they were, you know, branded as selling out. But then you have that dichotomy. Well, how do I get popular as a punk band without hmm. being, you know, accused of selling out or you know losing my roots and you know stuff like that? And it's something the Clash was accused of 
for sure. Um, you know, modern like Green Day's been accused of that, and it was also a thing where if they tried to change their music style or tried to become more refined musicians as well, they were accused of the same thing. Whereas I don't think that should be a criticism. No, it's really interesting thinking of that and then thinking of kind of what's the future for punk and what's the future for even just anti-establishment music. So I know I come from the southeast of England, quite close to London. I won't say where. Um, but yeah, and the real big movement there is the grime movement, which has existed since the end of, well, not really the end, it came out from the garage movement. Um, and the artists there, it's the same thing. It's as soon as people like Stormzy or Wiley or even Dizzy Rascal, like when they get big, they're then seen as selling out and they're seen as not being the people that they stood for. But I think that grime has a really interesting connection with anti-establishment. And even when I've seen Stormzy, I saw him live at Glastonbury in 2017, I ended up in a mosh pit at Stormzy, like <laughs> right down the front and it was great. <laughs> um, but I think that that is a real space. And I'm really interested to see if that kind of, because it's really taken off in Birmingham, it's really taken off in Manchester. And I know when grime artists come to play here, they're really huge and they attract really big crowds. Um, so I'm really interested to see some of the stuff that comes from Belfast. I know we've spoken about some particular artists and we are going to make a Spotify playlist for this episode because due to um, copyright establishment laws. copyright laws, <laughs> <laughs> we're not allowed to um, play any music. So we're going to make a Spotify playlist and we'll link it on social media and um, make sure that all of our listeners um, get access to that. But some of the ones that have been mentioned around the Northern Ireland scene, specifically in terms of grime and still punk, are artists like Jordan Adetunji. He played at the Northern Ireland um Music Awards last year was the first rap artist to do so. A collective called Kneecap, who are an Irish Gaelic speaking uh, duo. They're an Irish language rap duo. Yeah. yeah. Which is really cool. And, uh, and they've been banned by RT for really? being too political. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. RT, sorry. What is RT? RT is a uh, It's the National Broadcaster of the Republic of Ireland. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, and then John Sue, who's an uh, Asian um, Irish, Northern Irish um, rapper as well from Belfast. So I think that's a really, like, it's a really cool group of people. And then a band called Touts. Yes, they're a more recent punk band from Derry. They're awesome. Everyone should check them out. Cool. <laughs> okay. So just to wrap this up, to wrap this conversation up, I want to ask you guys a question that I asked Jim. Okay. What does this all amount to? What What do you see as the power or the influence that music or, or punk specifically can have in politics, can have in a divided society like Belfast? I mean, you've talked about it as a space where you can bring together mm. different groups of people. But outside of that, what, what does this amount to? Okay, I think that having that space where people could come together and actualize and live out an alternative identity that isn't uh, dictated by ethnic-national divides is important as a symbol of what is possible. It's also an important point of critique of what is out there. So uh, when we talk about anti-sectarianism, it's not a, a perspective that's heard widely elsewhere. Non-sectarianism is common in terms of this, well, we must respect both cultures equally and try and mix people in while not offending anybody's culture. Anti-sectarianism takes a, a much more radical, critical line and says, well, I actually think we need to reimagine something new here. And if it's a case of uh, erasing these confrontational cultures that are based on nationalism and religion and domination of each side, then let's get rid of all that. It's also a place for politicisation, exposure to these alternative politics, alternative ways of organising, organised on a collective basis, organised on a bottom-up basis. It's about access to resources, encouraging participation. Um, I think the punk culture, and especially that associated around Warzone and the anarchist movement, has uh, enriched the cultural fabric of Belfast, and it has had material ramifications, cultural ramifications, organisational ramifications, that probably aren't well acknowledged. When you look at politics and music in politics... Um, you'll hear a lot of poli-sci, you know, political scientists would look at music and say, that doesn't matter if that's just, it, it, you know, who cares what you're listening to? It, what happens in the halls of parliament, that is what mm. matters. That is politics. And I disagree with that. I think that politics happens and, and works in a lot of different ways. So what does this all mean? What impact does punk have? What does m music do in politics? 
For me, music and politics have always been related. You look at protest songs in the 60s and the impact they had. You know, you look at punk in the 70s and 80s and, and you know, even grime now and, and hip hop, what that did mm. and, and in its time as well. It's It's always been there. And it's always been part of the political movement. And I think a big flaw in academia is disregarding emotions and subjectivity and arts mm. as legitimate forms of political expression and mm. cultural expression. You know, if you want to look at the impact of punk, look at what it did on the ground. Mm-hmm. It crossed sectarian divides. It formed a new identity. It created a new political ethos in a place where it was very difficult to do so. Yeah. I would disagree with anyone who says it's not a legitimate form of politics. And it goes back to kind of the idea, you know, the personal is political. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree. Like, I think that music is so important for political expression and political engagement. And I think just in my own way of thinking, I can remember songs and music and how that make me, made me feel or how that made me really passionate about something a lot more than I can remember like half of the political stuff that's happened <laughs> during my lifetime. And yeah. you care about it more and you listen to it in the future and it reminds you of a certain time or a place. And I think live music as well is so important on that because like me talking about seeing Stormzy at Glastonbury in 2017, like hmm. that was so important for, like, for me and how... I felt in that and also like all the other people that I've seen live. And I think that's where it's really worrying now because it's so expensive to go to a gig. It's mm. so, it's like 30 quid to go and see a very kind of small band in Belfast. And and that's a cheap gig. That's a cheap gig. Exactly. Like that's not, that's not, a, you know, one of the main venues. So I think it's really sad how music is becoming really kind of inaccessible in that live way. And, and you don't have that that real connection that it makes as a as a group. Yeah, I completely agree. I would add that music is kind of a universal language. No mm. matter what background you're from, you're going to connect to some kind of music. I've never mm. met anyone who says outright, I hate all music. I've met a couple, <laughs> but they, they never mean it. They never mean it, <laughs> exactly. So what music does is it allows us to connect on a deeper level or on even a top level to who we are and... Mm. Music goes, like, I'm constantly listening to a music soundtrack in my head. Um, <laughs> very Disney. Um, but I think that that tells us kind of where people are. There's always something that you're connecting to, whether it's punk music or whether it's Disney music or mm. something else like that. I'm sorry. I'm getting <laughs> weird. Um, so that's what you're the expert. <laughs> yeah. And I think another kind of promising thing in terms of going forward is it's so much easier now Mm. to do it yourself there's so you know soundcloud and there's a million ways to self-record to get your voice out there to access a lot of non-mainstream voices and i think that's really promising yeah going forward kira i think i think you hit the nail on the head when you said it earlier that music as well as other art forms are legitimate forms of political expression and they engage with political debates and they add to them in ways that I think people ignore at their own peril. Well, Kira, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Sorry if we made any mistakes about punk and stuff. We're also learning. <laughs> Down the login in a bubble. Hello everyone, I'm Lindsay Hargrave doing this episode's segment of Down the Lagon in a Bubble. Following our episode theme, these resources will be focused on punk and music in politics slash conflict. Links to those resources will be shared on our social media, so stay tuned for that information as well. So let's get into it. Our first recommendation is the 2012 film Good Vibrations, chronicling the life of Terry Hooley, who was instrumental in developing the punk scene in Belfast, and you may have heard mentioned by our hosts in this episode. It can be rented for about £3 on both YouTube and Google Play, and is also available on Amazon Prime TV. Featuring our interviewee, Jim Donaghy, and the Mitchell Institute, The Sounding Conflict, From Resistance to Reconciliation Project, analyzes how sounds project and improve community experiences, memories, and narratives of conflict across cultures, and different conflict-post-conflict settings of resistance through reconciliation. We'll link you the reports for projects exploring this idea in Brazil, Palestine, Northern Ireland, and others. The next recommend is a book by Dave Renton called Never Again, 
Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League, 1976 to 1982, which recounts both organizations' formation and activism against the National Front Party in England in the 1970s. Rock Against Racism specifically brought together the punk and reggae music communities to fight the racism of the National Front through demonstrations and large concerts. I found a short article which gives a brief synopsis of the book and will link for you down below. If you're interested in the Rock Against Racism concerts, the radio show, All Styles Served Here, has a great playlist featuring songs by punk, reggae, and rock bands who participated in the protest concerts. In more recent news, Cahan Andrews wrote a piece in The Guardian about grime rapper Dave's performance of his song Black at the Brit Awards. He highlights not only the powerful political message in the performance, but also how that message is now being shared in the mainstream. We highly suggest you check out both the article and the performance. Our last resources are an interview and performance by Sunita Alizada, an Afghani rapper who uses her music to speak out against child marriage and structural oppression of women in Afghanistan. You can find all of these resources on our social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at QUBMPOD. If you have some resources you'd like to share or any suggestions for the MPOD team later episodes, please email us at mpodmitchell at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for this segment of Down the Lagon in a Bubble. I'm Lindsay Hargrave. Thanks again to Jim Donahue at the Mitchell Institute for his phenomenal conversation. Yeah. Thanks to Stephen in the booth in our <laughs> brand new studio. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at QBMPod and Instagram at QBMPod. Do you have something to add or any questions to ask? Please feel free to share your feedback and comments with us at mpodmitchell at gmail.com. Here at MPod, we discuss important issues, but they're not always easy to talk about, and we recognize that they might be sensitive for some listeners. We'd like to remind all listeners that Queen's Wellbeing Service offers a drop-in service every weekday during term time between 12.30 and 1.30 p.m. You can also contact the Wellbeing Service at 02890-972-893 or by email at studentwellbeing at qub.ac.uk. This podcast represents the perspective of the students involved in the program and the people interviewed in the podcast. We understand that this is not representative of all the students at Queen's or at the Mitchell Institute. MPOD is a production of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. Once again, thank you for listening.